How much LSD can a human being take? Gottlieb wanted to know. Could there be a breaking point, he wondered, a dose so massive that it would shatter the mind and blast away consciousness, leaving a void into which new impulses or even a new personality could be implanted. So writes journalist and historian Stephen Kinzer in his new book, Poisoner-in-Chief, Sidney Gottlieb and the CIA's Search for Mind Control. It's a biography of the secretive man behind the wildest program in CIA history, MKUltra, a years-long operation conceived during the height of the Cold War in which agency scientists injected massive doses of LSD into unsuspecting human guinea pigs in an effort to find new ways to bend minds and manipulate human behavior. It was a program that turns out to have been far more extensive and sinister than was publicly known when it was first revealed during the late 1970s. And it was recently back in the news when a juror who voted to convict one of those MK Ultra victims, Boston mob boss Whitey Bulger, said she wouldn't have done so had she known what the government had done to him. We'll talk to Kinzer as we dig into the story of MK Ultra and the strange chemist who directed it on this episode of Buried Treasure. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, of all the accounts of CIA abuses during the Cold War, there's probably none that looms larger in the public imagination and inspired more conspiracy theories than MKUltra. This was this secret program of literal mind control in which, you know, human guinea pigs, people who have no idea what's going on, what they're about to receive from these scientists who they didn't know were working for the CIA, were given these incredibly large doses of LSD. These were brutal experiments, so demonic that they call to mind the Nazi experimentation, you know, Dr. Mengele in the concentration camps. And, you know, what's striking to me, I, I'd never heard of Sidney Gottlieb, you know, and I, I'm surprised that Sidney Gottlieb is not a household name. The landmark church committee hearings uh, looked into all of the abuses of, of the CIA and, and they got into MKUltra. But they did not really get into uh, Sidney Gottlieb in a serious way. And I think this also points to a larger point here, which is that the CIA has never really confronted its sordid past in some of these questions. And I think that's why this book by Stephen Kinzer is so important. Well, I totally agree. And let's uh, make an effort to make Sidney Gottlieb more of a household name by having our talk with uh, the author of Poisoner-in-Chief, Stephen Kinzer. We now have with us Stephen Kinzer, 
the author of Poisoner-in-Chief, Sidney Gottlieb and the CIA's Search for Mind Control. Stephen, welcome to Skullduggery. Good to be with you. So this is a subject of just endless fascination. Uh, it certainly has absorbed me for many, many years. So I just let's just start out by telling our listeners about Sidney Gottlieb. Who was he? This is truly an amazing story. I can say from my own perspective, this is my 10th book. I've devoted a lot of my career to try to find out what happens behind the facade of public politics and public diplomacy that we can see. I've discovered a lot of things in the course of that research that's been surprising, and it may have shocked some people, but this is the first time I've been shocked. I still can't believe that this happened, that there was such a thing as MKUltra and that there was such a person as Sidney Gottlieb. He lived in total invisibility. So in a sense, my book is the biography of a man who wasn't there. I've had to try to, to piece him together and try to figure out who he was and, and what he did. Actually, uh, just to break in, I noticed in one point in the book, you talk about how you approached a former director of the CIA who professed not to know who Sidney Gottlieb was. And I believe that guy. Uh, Gottlieb has faded away almost entirely, and that was his desire. He was conducting the most extreme experiments on human beings that have ever been conducted by any agency or officer of the U.S. government. He had what was, in effect, a license to kill. Putting all this together, I conclude that Sidney Gottlieb was probably the most powerful, unknown American of the 20th century. Steve, is it possible that one reason Sidney Gottlieb has escaped attention is because the CIA never confronted its sordid past? I mean, have they ever dealt with the awful things that Sidney Gottlieb was doing? They have in a very interesting way. And it is something that I think they had in mind from the very beginning. They ultimately have said essentially that Gottlieb was some kind of wacko. He was not supervised well. Things got off, off the rails. The project got out of control. There were problems with supervision. So essentially, it was all Sidney's fault. This is a way of eliminating all institutional responsibility on the part of the CIA and on the part of the U.S. government. In a sense, he was chosen so that he would fit well into that role. So Sidney Gottlieb joined the CIA in its early years, in 1951. At that time, almost all of the senior officers of the CIA came from a particular social class. They were silver spoon products of the American aristocracy who knew each other from prep school and the same colleges and investment banks and law firms. Sidney Gottlieb was completely different from the rest of them. He was the son of Jewish immigrants. He grew up in the Bronx. He stuttered. He had a limp. So he was very much of an outsider. I think that they must have had this in mind when they hired him. They knew that what he was doing was brutal, was bloody, and was causing an unknown number of deaths. They didn't want to put somebody from their own social class in the position of having to oversee this project that they knew was very horrific. Quite possibly, they even had in mind when they brought him on and sent him off to run this MKUltra mind control project, the idea that 
in the end, if it all goes wrong, we'd be happy to throw Sidney under the bus because we don't have any class or social ties to him. And just to back up a second, what they were doing was, and what Sidney Gottlieb was doing, was running a program, a covert program aimed at mind control, experimenting with LSD on some of the most vulnerable Americans with no consent at all. The idea behind MKUltra was to find a substance that would allow the CIA to control people's minds and and manipulate them and make them do things that they would never otherwise do and then, if you were lucky, just forget that they had ever done them. So with a scientist's mind, Gottlieb broke down this project and he decided that before you could find a way to insert a new mind into somebody's brain – You first had to find a way to blast away the mind that was in there. That was the goal of all of these horrific experiments. He used every kind of drug combination he could imagine, plus sensory deprivation, hypnosis, electroshock, and all kinds of other techniques, all aimed at trying to find a way to destroy a human mind, a human spirit, and a human body. Behind him, he left a trail of wounded and dead in numbers that nobody can even estimate because records were all destroyed as Gottlieb left the CIA. So this was a Cold War program started in the early 1950s, and like much else from the Cold War era, it arose out of fears that the Soviets— and international communism were doing something like this. And therefore, we couldn't have a gap, a mind control gap, as it were. What do we know about what the Soviets were up to and what U.S. intelligence thought the Soviets were up to that prompted them to launch a program like this? Those are two very different things, what the Soviets were doing and what we thought the Soviets were doing. So I asked myself this same question you're asking about as I was working on this book, Poisoner in Chief. What led the early directors of the CIA, and in particular Alan Dulles, and then the person he hired to run this MK Ultra project, Sidney Gottlieb, to believe that there was such a thing as mind control? In the end, after 10 years, Sidney Gottlieb finally concluded that There is no such thing as mind control. Actually, what many of the psychologists have been telling them over the years, that you cannot make a person go out and commit murder if that person is deeply opposed to murder, turned out to be true. But what made them think that it was possible? I think there are two baskets of explanations. One has to do with a couple of actual episodes that the CIA misinterpreted as meaning that the Soviets had indeed found the secret to mind control. Uh, The first was a show trial held in Budapest for the Roman Catholic prelate of Hungary, Cardinal Menzenti. He had been held in prison for a number of months, and at his trial, he seemed glassy-eyed and spoke in a monotone. He confessed to crimes that he obviously hadn't committed. It later turned out that he had been coerced by means that were the same as those means that interrogators have been using for centuries, like extended isolation and beatings and repeated interrogations. But it didn't look that way to the CIA. CIA officers looked at that. They saw his face. They saw what he was saying. And they thought to themselves, 
Somebody is behind the screen manipulating this guy. They're making him say these things. So that was a misinterpretation, but it was terrifying. Then, shortly thereafter, we had another episode with the return of Americans who had been captured and held prisoner in Korea during the Korean War. It turned out that a number of them had written statements condemning aspects of life in the United States. Some expressed sympathy for communism. A number of pilots confessed to having dropped germ warfare bombs on North Korea, something that the United States firmly insisted and still insists never happened. So why would they say these things? Then the CIA jumped to the same conclusion. It must be that somehow their minds had been captured by the communists and they were made to say these things. So these two episodes electrified minds back at the CIA and made them think that some radical program like MKUltra was absolutely necessary as a defensive mechanism. But I think there must have been something deeper, not just those particular episodes that led Alan Dulles, Sidney Gottlieb and company to believe in mind control. And I think it has to do with the cultural conditioning with which they were brought up. Think of all the books and the stories and the movies about mind control. It's an endlessly fascinating trope if you're interested in fiction. Yeah, well, there are Edgar Allan Poe stories and Sherlock Holmes stories and movies like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and Gaslight. Those guys grew up watching those movies and reading those stories and I think they believed that since fiction could imagine it, there probably was an element of truth to it. That also fed their desire to plunge into this project. Well, of course, you know, there was the Manchurian Candidate, a novel and then a movie that came out in the early 1960s, which was about Korean mind control, uh, programming an American to assassinate a presidential candidate. And ironically, it was the book, uh, The Search for the Manchurian Candidate by John Marks in the 1970s, that I believe first revealed the existence of MK Ultra. You're right. When Sidney Gottlieb left the CIA in 1973, along with his longtime mentor, Richard Helms, who was at that time the director of the CIA, the two of them sat down and quickly decided that all the files from MKUltra should be destroyed. Gottlieb actually had to go out to the CIA Records Center in Warrenton, Virginia, and oversee uh, the destruction of seven crates of documents because the archivist there was reluctant to do it without a, a direct order. So all those records were destroyed and a priceless archive was lost. Later on in the mid-1970s, this researcher, John Marks, decided to file a Freedom of Information Act request with the CIA asking if there were any other documents that might be found somewhere else. Coincidentally, this request landed at a time when the CIA was under orders from a new president, Jimmy Carter, to open up and be more honest about what it had done. So the new director of the CIA, Stansfield Turner, ordered a real search, not kind of a phony search. And that search turned up in a trove of financial documents, a set of records that listed expense accounts for many of the people involved in MKUltra. From those records, we have been able to 
develop an idea of what were these 149 sub-projects that uh, MKUltra oversaw. And that book, The Search for the Manchurian Candidate, is the foundation for later research that has deepened our understanding of this project. So, Stephen, there's a fascinating irony that your book raises and, and talks about, which I wanted to ask you about, which is that the CIA and Sidney Gottlieb's experiments using LSD on unsuspecting people, in a way, that seeped in and helped, maybe is it overstated to say, helped create the counterculture in the 1960s, uh, particularly in San Francisco, that people like Timothy Leary and Ken Kesey ultimately were experimenting and using LSD because of this program. And of course, the very same counterculture that then wanted to abolish the CIA. So talk about that a little bit. Sidney Gottlieb was fascinated by LSD. It was a newly discovered drug. It had only been discovered in the 1940s. It was colorless, odorless, and had amazing effects in very small quantities. Gottlieb himself used LSD, by his own estimate, at least 200 times. He and the people around him began to feel that perhaps this drug could be what one of them called the key that could unlock the universe. In other words, it it might be the answer to what's the substance that can open up people's minds to outside control. So in 1953, Gottlieb persuaded the CIA to buy the entire world supply of LSD. It was then being manufactured (laughs) only by one company in Switzerland, the Sandoz Company. All of that LSD came to the United States and, and came to the CIA. Gottlieb used it for two kinds of experiments. Some were horrifically brutal, carried out in prisons in the United States and in safe houses around Europe and East Asia. Many people were fed overdoses without being told what they were being given. I turned up, for example, evidence of uh, one experiment at the federal prison in Lexington, Kentucky. In that experiment, seven African-American inmates were given triple doses of LSD every day for 77 days while locked in a padded room. So if the object of that experiment was to find out whether such an overdose could destroy a human mind, the answer is obviously yes. But beyond those horrific experiments, there was another basket of LSD projects that Gottlieb oversaw. He wanted to know how ordinary people would respond to LSD in a clinical setting in which they would be told in advance what they were doing. So the CIA did not have the ability to carry out clinical tests. Only universities and hospitals had that. So Gottlieb set up a couple of bogus medical foundations. These foundations then contacted hospitals and clinics around the United States and told them, we have this new psychoactive substance, LSD. We want to test it. We will pay you to test it. We'll send you the LSD. You advertise for volunteers. You can pay them. And all you have to do is write up reports about how people react. And the clinics and hospitals that accepted participation in this project, in most cases, had no idea that those medical foundations were actually the CIA. So they didn't realize why these LSD experiments were being carried out. They were actually part of a program to find a tool for mind control. So who were among the first people who signed up to take LSD in those benign LSD experiments? Well, one of them was Ken Kesey, who uh, went on to write 
One flew over the cuckoo's nest. It became a great Bible of the counterculture. Another was the poet Allen Ginsberg, who listened to Tristan and Isolde on his headphones while taking LSD. Another was Robert Hunter, the lyricist for The Grateful Dead. These guys all took LSD home with them. They turned on all their friends. This is how The Grateful Dead got its LSD. It, it sounds Ken like Keys, we have a lot to be thankful to Sidney Gottlieb for. <laughs> As a matter of fact, later in life, all these people came to realize that their LSD had come from the CIA. I found an interview with John Lennon in which he was asked about LSD, and he said, we must always remember to thank the CIA. Now, he had never heard of Sidney Gottlieb. Nobody had. But if he had, he would have said, we must always remember to thank Sidney Gottlieb. He's the original Pied Piper of LSD. And, of course, the irony is that he was the person through whom LSD leaked out into the counterculture and the drug that Gottlieb hoped would give the CIA the tool to control people's minds actually wound up fueling a generational rebellion that was aimed at destroying everything the CIA believed in. Okay, so two stories which I want you to tell from your book, which are somewhat darker than Ken Kesey uh, and Allen Ginsberg and John Lennon. One is Frank Olson one of Sidney Gottlieb's victims, and another, which got my attention recently because there were just some stories about this, Whitey Bulger. Tell us Frank Olson and Whitey Bulger and how they came to be subjects of Sidney Gottlieb's experiments. Whitey Bulger fits very much into the category uh, that I was just discussing. So under Gottlieb's supervision, a number of federal prisons began experiments uh, with LSD using inmates. And of course, that's an ideal population because those people are totally dependent on the prison doctor and the prison warden. During the mid-1950s, when MKUltra was at its peak, Whitey Bulger, the famous Boston gangster, was in prison as a truck hijacker in Atlanta, Georgia. He was approached by the prison doctor who told him that uh, the prison was going to be participating in a major project aimed at finding a cure for schizophrenia. And if Bulger would agree to take a certain drug that they were investigating, he might have some considerations like uh, sh shorter time in prison and better conditions. So he was given LSD for months, at least 50 times, without being told what it was. He later wrote what a nightmarish experience this was and how his, in his, for his whole life, he never recovered from it. Years later, when he found out that this doctor was actually working on a CIA project and not trying to cure schizophrenia, he told other members of his gang, I'm going back to Atlanta, I'm going to find that guy, and I'm going to kill him. He didn't find that doctor who died of apparently natural causes uh, soon thereafter. But uh, definitely Bulger is interesting because he's one of the few MK Ultra subjects who later came out and explained what had happened to him. And I should now, just point out that the I, I mentioned that this has recently been in the news because uh, one of the jurors who voted to convict Whitey Bulger in 2013 in a massive racketeering case, including links to 11 murders, after, I guess, she carried on a correspondence with Whitey Bulger after the conviction and after reading your book, gave an interview in which she said, had she known about all this, she would not have voted to convict Bulger on the murder charges.
That's true. She had been in contact with me, and I put her in touch with reporters. Uh, yeah, she, she said that after reading my book and understanding what had happened to Bulger, she wondered why this hadn't been brought up by the defense team in his trial. To go back to the story of Frank Olson, that's a little bit separate, but also definitely one of the great central uh, stories and mysteries of MK Ultra. Frank Olson was a chemist and part of the very small group that worked with Sidney Gottlieb on MK Ultra, which was, of course, one of the most highly secret projects in the history of the United States. So Olson knew some very deep and, and dark secrets about what the CIA was doing. He was also an expert in bacteriological warfare and had been working at Camp Dietrich in Maryland, which was the center of American biowarfare research uh, during the 1940s. That means that if the United States had used biological weapons in the Korean War, which, as I said, the United States has always denied, he would certainly be one of the few people who knew about it. So he was a keeper of some very deep secrets. Uh, in the summer of 1953, he did something that MK Ultra chemists often did, which was to travel to watch the experiments being conducted on uh, what were called expendables in Europe. He watched, at least in one case, somebody being uh, tortured and apparently tortured to death using a poison that he himself, Olson, had concocted. At some point, he just decided he didn't want to do this anymore. He, he couldn't take it anymore. He told people not only that he wanted to quit MK Ultra, but he wanted to quit the CIA. And at one point, he even asked a friend of his, do you know a good journalist? So this posed uh, the greatest security threat ever to the uh, MK Ultra project. In November of 1953, a few months after uh, Olson began becoming very upset about his own work, he was invited to one of the periodic retreats that Gottlieb and the handful of other scientists with whom he worked uh, attended regularly to talk about their projects. During that meeting, Frank Olson was secretly dosed with LSD, possibly in an effort to uh, extract from him what he was thinking, what he was planning to do. It's not quite clear what happened in the subsequent days, but about a week later, while in New York with CIA agents who were trying to bring him to what they said was psychological treatment, he went out the 13th floor window of a New York City hotel room and plunged to his death. That was reported as the suicide of an army scientist. He was not an army scientist. He was working for the CIA. And the suicide uh, later evolved into a couple of different narratives. At this point, nobody knew that Olson had been dosed with LSD. Uh, it just seemed that he had gone crazy and was depressed and jumped out the window. In the 1970s, the CIA finally admitted that Olson had been dosed with LSD. And the president of the United States, Gerald Ford, actually brought the survivors of his family into the Oval Office and apologized on behalf of the CIA and the U.S. government, something that has never happened ever before or since. And the new narrative became he didn't just get depressed and jump out a window. He jumped out the window because his mind had been uh, distorted and he could become crazy because of LSD that the CIA had secretly given him. So the CIA was very apologetic, and so was President Ford. Then, years later, a third narrative emerged. The family had Olson's body exhumed. They found a big 
bruise on his front forehead. They didn't find the glass shards that they expected to find if he had dived through a window. That and a number of other pieces of circumstantial evidence have convinced uh, the family, and including at least one of the principal uh, investigators in the case who's now retired but still on it, a guy that worked for the district attorney's office, that actually it wasn't a suicide at all. That because Frank Olson knew so many secrets and was threatening to reveal them, he was considered an unacceptable security risk and was actually helped out that window. What do, what do you believe? The evidence is all circumstantial, but it's quite strong. There's no smoking gun, but it seems to me the pieces are all there. The motive is certainly there. If you put yourself back in that era and you put yourself in the position of an Alan Dulles or a Sidney Gottlieb, these people were involved in projects that were killing people regularly. They had adopted the view that this project was so important because the key to mastering the world could lie in mind control, that the loss of a few lives or even a few hundred lives was a very small price to pay. And if one of those lives had to be a person from inside the project who was threatening its secrecy and therefore the security of the United States as the CIA saw it, perhaps helping him out a window would have been seen the only possible solution. So I was also fascinated to read that Sidney Gottlieb was involved in another very high priority operation of the CIA's in the 1960s, and that was plots to assassinate Fidel Castro, one involving his beard, or at least to take away his power. Tell us that story. MK Ultra didn't have a firm ending, but it kind of petered out towards the end of the late 50s and into the early 60s. Gottlieb, as I said earlier, had come to realize and wrote down his conclusion that um, these drugs like LSD were too unreliable to be used as tools for mind control and that actually there's no such thing as mind control. But then Gottlieb went on to a completely new phase in his career. He was the CIA's chief chemist. So when President Eisenhower ordered the assassination of Fidel Castro in the summer of 1960 and the CIA decided to use poison, it was quite logical that Sidney Gottlieb would get the assignment. He knew more about poisons than anyone in the CIA anyone in the United States, and I'm, I'm going to guess more than anybody in the world. He was obsessed with finding all sorts of natural poisons, and he was getting the gallbladders of crocodiles from Africa and poison barks from Southeast Asia and shrubs from Central America, anything that could be seen as poison he assembled. So it was Gottlieb who concocted all the poisons that were intended to kill Fidel Castro, one that was supposed to uh, make his beard fall out and one that would make him seem disoriented in public, but also ones that were supposed to be fatal. It was Gottlieb who made the L pills. I learned a whole new vocabulary while writing this book. That means lethal. Those other fatal pills, when you drop it into someone's tea, they die. 
Gottlieb made those, and they were delivered to Cuba for use in killing Castro. Gottlieb made a poison wetsuit, which was tainted with a virus inside that would eat away Castro's skin if he put it on. Gottlieb made a poison pen with a hypodermic needle that was super thin so that if it was stuck into Castro's thigh from behind, he wouldn't even feel it. So this was the period when Gottlieb took on his new identity as America's poisoner-in-chief. That same summer, he put together the poison kit that was intended to be used to kill the prime minister of the Congo, Patrice Lumumba, and he personally carried that poison kit to the CIA station chief in the Congo, making him, I'm sure, the only person in American history who has ever carried government-issued poison to another country for use in killing the leader of that country. So this is Gottlieb's new, new identity, and that's what first brought him to the attention of congressional investigators. Later, when he was questioned, he was only asked about the assassination plots because they seemed so lurid. But in fact, Gottlieb was just the pharmacist in that case. If he hadn't made the poison, somebody else could have been called in to do it. The much bigger story about Gottlieb, which the senators and investigators never penetrated, was the grotesque MK Ultra project, which came entirely out of Gottlieb's mind and would have been very different had someone else been running it. You know, there was another book that came out last year, Chaos, about uh, uh, the Manson murders, in which the uh, journalist uh, and author Tom O'Neill argues that uh, there is evidence that Manson and some of uh, his family members were administered LSD as part of an MK Ultra subcontract in the Haight-Ashbury section of San Francisco, and that this may have inspired them to commit the uh, brutal murders that they did. Now, I notice you don't have any reference to this in your book. Have you looked into this at all? Do you give any credence to that theory? I'm open to that possibility. Um, other people have talked about Ted Kaczynski, the uh, Unabomber. Was he involved somehow as a, a victim of uh, one of these related projects? People even suspect that maybe Sirhan Sirhan, the assassin of Robert Kennedy, was somehow mind controlled. People have even, there's even a book about John Lennon's murder. I, I find these interesting. But they're not what I do. I don't speculate. Every sentence in my book has a footnote. It comes from somewhere. Maybe my favorite line in the book is something I write in the afterward. At the very end, I write, everything in this book is true, but not everything that's true is in this book. <laughs> I'm painfully aware Good that line. I've only discovered a small <laughs> yeah. piece of what this project was and what Sidney Gottlieb did. And my book is the best effort to show the answers to those questions with the real information that we have available today. Stephen, is there any indication at all that uh, Sidney Gottlieb was uh, held accountable for this? I mean, you said he testified. Were there lawsuits? Were there criminal investigations? Or uh, has he essentially gone scot-free until your book. Towards the end of his life, Gottlieb was facing two different situations. One was internal. The people around him in his final years have all said that he was obviously haunted by something that he wouldn't talk about. Uh, one person who visited him in that period said he was haunted by guilt 
Uh, he was a destroyed man. If he had been Catholic, he would have gone to a monastery. So he was obviously deeply troubled, but he would never speak about it. Then another factor that added to his anxiety was that after many, many years, a couple of lawsuits seemed to be getting closer to him. The Frank Olson murder case uh, was being reinvestigated. And finally, it looked like Gottlieb was about to be brought to trial as a named defendant in a case that stemmed from the poisoning by LSD of a young American who had met a guy with a limp in a bar in Paris and uh, whose life was destroyed thereafter. So evidently, this guy had been poisoned by Gottlieb. It took 20 years for this case to begin working its way through the judicial system. And finally, a trial date was set for the beginning of 1999. This was uh, quite remarkable. Gottlieb had had to submit himself to private depositions, but now he was going to have to get on the stand and testify under oath, not just about that particular case, but about everything he had done. He could be asked about MK Ultra and all of its related projects just as the case was about to come to trial, Gottlieb died. The cause of death was never announced. Yeah, the body was immediately cremated. Uh, Gottlieb was always said to have been the master of poisons that people could take uh, that no autopsy would ever be able to detect. So I did find a few people who truly suspect that he might have killed himself to avoid having to testify, that he basically fell on his sword rather than be put in a position where he'd have to betray secrets that he had sworn to keep. Nobody knows if that's true, but it's a very intriguing footnote to Gottlieb's death in 1999. It would certainly make a great ending for the movie. Uh, <laughs> but uh, until that comes about, anybody interested in this subject, which... I should be a lot of our listeners uh, would uh, do well to uh, take a look at Poisoner in Chief, Sidney Gottlieb and the CIA search for mind control. Stephen Kinzer, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks to former New York Times correspondent and author Stephen Kinzer for joining us on this episode of Very Treasure. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.